Hello everyone, I'm Duncan Rayburn and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast and to the second episode in our new series on reworlding, which is about a lot of things to do with finding meaning and making sense of what's happening when faith and understanding are in transition. I'm exploring what's going on when people begin to arrive at different conclusions from others or different conclusions from what they used to believe. And I'm assuming, although hopefully for good reasons, that this has something to do with what you might call our interpretive experience. It's got to do with not just what we know, but also with how we know it and how we experience our knowing it. Faith and understanding are always mixed up together. So this means we're exploring some insights from a discipline known as philosophical hermeneutics. And while this can seem complicated, I'm going to do my best here to get to the essence of this discipline without relying too heavily on overly technical jargon. Remember that philosophical hermeneutics deals with the experience of interpretive understanding. That is with how we find ourselves embedded in a world of meaning and mystery. In the previous episode, I referred to the first chapter of the first book of the Bible as a way of understanding a fundamental fact of our human experience, the fact that faith and understanding are always inworlded or englobed. Meaning is always context-dependent, and even the sense of losing meaning depends on a particular world of meaning. When we go through transitions of faith and understanding, It's helpful to think of this in terms of the experience of moving from one world of meaning to another. It's about migrating or emigrating. The modern era has done a lot of damage to our sense of this fact, though, by shifting the focus onto the supposedly autonomous individual. This is a mistake of fairly epic proportions, but to properly understand it, I want to explore some of how human nature is articulated in the first three chapters of Genesis. If the theme of the previous episode was the world, the theme of this episode is the idea of ground. As the story goes, God makes humanity in his image. That's in Genesis 1 verse 27. God takes the dirt of the ground and he breathes into it. Genesis 2 verse 7. This is how what is essentially a clump of dirt becomes a living being who is referred to as Adam from the word Adama, which means dirt or ground. There is a common refrain in the scriptures about the connection between us and the ground. And even when Adam is later reprimanded by God for disobeying him, it is not just Adam that is cursed, but the ground too. The idea here right up front is that the human being is always situated, always part of the world. What we do affects the earth. What happens to the earth affects us. Note too that the ground comes first. God takes the ground and then breathes into it. The dirt is, if you like, hallowed by spirit. This is not just a statement of the obvious, though. It's a reminder of a profound metaphysical and psychological reality. The story is never just about us. It's about everything and everyone around us. The idea that humanity is made of this combination of earth and heaven also tells us that Without the breath of divinity, we are just a random bunch of atoms. We are without form and void, essentially de-worlded and meaningless. 
But in the simple act of God breathing into the dirt to make humanity, we have a repetition of the idea that reality is comprised of both heaven, breath, and earth, dirt. The mandate of humanity, therefore, becomes a matter of dynamically participating in this double reality. Adam is a heaven-earth being, a being of form and matter. This is to say, Adam is a microcosm. He is the meeting point of heaven and earth, the hinge between eternity and temporality. To be truly human is always to be an echo of a much larger world of meaning. And we are always in a terrible danger of jeopardizing the larger world of meaning when we gesture towards earth only and not towards heaven also. In the process, we will shrink the world rather than expand it. The cosmos will become smaller rather than larger. There's a key idea in all of this, the idea that meaning functions in ripples around a central axis that embraces and unifies seeming opposites in much the way that music flows outward and encompasses and draws all things into its rhythms and harmonies. Adam's breath-dirt structure echoes the heaven-earth structure of reality. And we will see these ripples in other dimensions of scripture and life too. Even when you read words on a page or listen to someone talking, heaven and earth are in a way being either drawn together or pulled apart. And I think that's something to pay attention to. This is all very wonderful, but Adam is alone. And since God thinks that this isn't a good thing, he gives Adam a job. He tells him to name the animals as they are paraded before him. Here we have a clear sense of Adam's place as God's image since he is welcomed by God into reenacting the way that God speaks creation into being. To speak is, if only potentially, to echo the way that God converts pure materiality into meaning. Adam looks from heaven and informs earth, and looks from earth to lift earth up towards heaven. As I mentioned in the last episode, this is an ongoing theme in the scriptures. Adam is a between being. He's neither angel nor animal, as Plato would say, and this means that his role is that of a mediator. He stands between heaven and earth, between eternity and time, between bread and wine, and he therefore becomes the conduit through which these things ought to be reconciled. To live, he requires nutrition from both earth and heaven, which is why we read in Deuteronomy 8 about how when manna fell from the sky during the great exodus, it showed that humanity doesn't live by bread alone. And this is obviously an idea that Jesus quotes when tempted by that dirt-obsessed serpent, Satan, in the wilderness. You can check out Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 for that. We should remember, of course, that the Israelites fed on both quails from the earth and manna from the heavens, which again echoes the idea that we need the stuff of earth and heaven if we are to be whole. You can think of how this is echoed when Jesus prays over the bread and fish at the feeding of the 5,000. He raises the bread up to heaven, which is a fantastic symbol of how the job of the human is always to raise things up, to inspirit the stuff of earth. In raising earth up to heaven, earth multiplies and many hungry bellies are fed. There's this wonderful idea in St. Ephraim the Syrian's hymns that the great sin of Adam and Eve in taking the fruit is that they did not offer thanksgiving. 
So this is something that is remedied by Jesus when he gives thanks. It's a very powerful motive in in, in Jewish thought and history that is then taken up in, into uh, the Christian tradition. So thanksgiving is really vital for joining heaven and earth. Anyway, back to Adam. He names the animals and then what is unintelligible stuff, movement, limbs, mouths, teeth, feathers, fur, scales, and so on, becomes meaningful. Lions, lizards, camels, parrots, elephants, and so on. Heaven and earth combine, and in a manner of speaking, there is light. Clarity accompanies what was not at first clear. Illumination accompanies what was dark. But there is also an act of interpretation here. Adam's naming of the animals is not just about arbitrarily assigning words to arbitrary animals. Names are not arbitrary, but deeply connected to the actual being of things. It's not just about words, but about getting the words right. In Adam's case, it's about naming the animals well. In fact, clarity only emerges when we get our words right. This shows just how interconnected Adam's nature is to the world. There is something very deliberate and careful going on. He lowers meaning, heaven, so that uninformed matter, earth, becomes intelligible, so that earth is raised up to heaven. This, as I said, is part of humanity's function. But another role of Adam and another theme in the scriptures is his job to host angels. Humanity also needs to be receptive to heavenly things, as we find, for instance, in the story of Abraham entertaining strangers who turn out to be angels. This is in Genesis 18, and also in the idea of entertaining angels in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 13. To entertain angels is, of course, to be receptive to God's message and to the gift of meaning. Still, when Adam is done with his act of naming animals, it only makes clear just how much Adam is not like the animals. He does his job well, but he doesn't find a helper among the beasts. So God knocks Adam out and takes a rib from him and makes Eve. Adam sleeps, he is connected to earth in that moment, and God inspirits earth and makes a creature of immense beauty. Adam is, of course, completely enthralled when he sees Eve. Now, I know what kind of age we live in. We have all heard ideas about how gender is a construct and we have all kinds of ways to technologize and commodify sexuality. We're going to set those things aside for now because they have nothing to do with the worldview and meaning expressed in the book of Genesis. And I'm trying to make a larger point through all of this that has to do with something bigger than our current political and technological obsessions. The early chapters of Genesis, we should remember, are about creation. And the issue of creation is reworlding, making a world and filling the world. That is, we're looking at populating the world and injecting meaning into it. So the prime duality of Adam and Eve is a continuation of the larger picture. Adam becomes symbolic of heaven and Eve of earth. The male-female duality is an echo of a divinely inspired picture. Even the bodies and unique anatomies of Adam and Eve become symbolic of this, and the way that their bodies work together is precisely why creation can continue. New life can fill earth. Meaning echoes outwards. Adam and Eve have children, and their children have children, and so on. What starts small, a mere seed from Adam planted in the soil, represented by Eve, grows into an entire nation, Israel, 
And that nation is here, as we learn through Abraham later in the book of Genesis, to extend blessing to the rest of the cosmos. Again, there is an echo of God's nature in all of this. God makes humanity in his image, and it is humanity's job to make more humanity, something that is not possible apart from the duality of male and female. We can see then that Adam and Eve symbolize the union of heaven and earth at at the cosmic level, and this union translates, at least in one sense, into a sexual union at the human level. Male and female, therefore, represent two halves of a whole, with the male being responsible, mostly, again this is symbolically speaking, for materializing meaning, and with Eve being tasked, mostly, again symbolically speaking, with refining matter. There's a dimension of negotiability in all of this, of course, but what remains essential is the intertwining of heaven and earth. We are, as people, co-creators with God, and in this co-creation is new life, as we read in the first verse of Genesis 4. But as we know, things are about to go pear-shaped. Eve finds herself alone in Genesis 3, and she enters into a conversation with a serpent, It's a creature of the ground. The serpent is talking, which should strike all of us as a tremendously odd thing for a reptile to do. It suggests already that something is out of place. In the history of art, the serpent occupies the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And while there is no clear indication in Genesis of where the serpent is, we might assume that wherever he is, he is in the wrong place. He tells Eve to pay attention to the fruit of the tree, the only tree that God has forbidden to mankind. Eve looks at the fruit and it is quite enticing. There is so much going on here that it's impossible to come to the end of it, but I just want to mention a few ideas that are kind of key to our exploration. First, Eve is alone. She has been separated from Adam. Symbolically speaking, already we have earth operating independently from heaven. We also have a serpent, a ground being, who wants to bring something high up, fruit, low down. And that spells trouble. The second thing is that Eve is not completely ignorant. She reminds the serpent that touching and eating the fruit can only mean one thing, death. So even though Eve is on shaky ground, she has not yet completely lost the plot. Through our Western paradigms, we may be tempted to think that what's about to go wrong is that Eve does the wrong thing. She disobeys the law. And that's a very modern way of reading the text. It is actually more likely that the trouble is one of breaking trust, both with Adam and with God. The detrimental thing is choosing against worlding and reworlding and relational harmony in favor of a particularly detrimental kind of deworlding. While Eve initially has the presence of mind to recognize that things will not go well for her if she acts against the world and against, obviously, God who made the world, she does, in the end, give in to the serpent's wiles. After all, the fruit of the tree looks tasty. She takes the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she eats it. She essentially chooses to take something when it was not given. One way to understand this, there are obviously other ways to understand it, is to think of this first sin as theft. What was meant to belong to God is seized as if it can belong to human beings. Eve fully absorbs the dualistic heavenly object, the knowledge of good and evil, 
that was attached to something higher than herself. She fully subsumes what is heavenly, what should belong to God, beneath her earthly self. Again, speaking symbolically, she creates, in essence, a new world, albeit a de-worlded one and a de-worlding one. It's something that's actually ripping things apart. So she de-spirits the knowledge of good and evil. She makes it a merely earthly concern. She makes worlding an issue of mere human understanding. And then she gives the fruit to Adam. This is so fascinating. Our temptation in the modern world with our ideals around gender equality and the like is to get all huffy and puffy about how Eve is blamed for the fall of man. This is so utterly beside the point that it actually boggles my mind. And I think it's mostly the result of a too literal and not symbolic enough reading of these passages. In any case, Adam was supposed to be with Eve, which is to say that even before Eve started chatting to the serpent, Adam was messing up. Adam is not where he is supposed to be. That, you could say, is the general theme of the story. No one is where they're supposed to be. The relational world has been thrown into disarray and anarchy. Even the serpent is speaking, which is to say that language, which is supposed to belong only to God and humanity, is coming out of the mouth of a reptile. And that is a problem. The reptile has seized what does not belong to him, and in the process has begun to distort the world through language. He tells Eve, just to get her to stop worrying, that she won't die as God had said she will. Again, there's a lot to say about this, but I just want to point out two things. First, the serpent seizes ownership of the meaning of God's words as if God's authorship and meaning were of no real consequence. This is to say that meaning becomes whatever he thinks it should be instead of a question of relationship. And second, the serpent does this by taking God's metaphorical meaning literally. God does mean, of course, that death will literally happen. But he also means this much more metaphorically. The way of death, slow and painful and inevitable, is about how life is lived. However, the serpent de-worlds this meaning and takes only the literal one. A strong warning to biblical literalists everywhere, I think. And so, when Eve gives the fruit to Adam, we also have an example of things being in the wrong place. Relationships are upside down. Adam's symbolic role is to elevate Eve, to lift her up, to give his life for her, as St. Paul writes. But he isn't doing his job when Eve is conversing with the serpent. What happens next is that Eve seizes what is not hers and she gives what is not hers to Adam. Which is to say, having him share in the disorder that she has just bought into. The corruption of earth, in the form of Eve, leads to the obfuscation of the heavenly in Adam, which is why shortly in the Genesis story we have God looking for Adam. I think that's as clear an image as any, that heaven is what is lost in all of that fruit guzzling. Immediately, Adam and Eve have their eyes opened, and they see what's going on. They feel exposed and ashamed. As God himself acknowledges soon enough, they know good and evil just as he does, but with a significant difference. They are not God. They are not fully capable of the capacity of judgment required to fully understand these very deep mysteries, and now they have effectively severed their relationship not only with the divine, but with each other and with the world and even with themselves. 
There's a belief that many people seem to hold to that the fall of man involved a fall into interpretation. But what becomes evident in this story is that the fall is a fall from interpretation. Misunderstanding may exist on either side before the fall and after it. In fact, there is a sense of this misunderstanding in the fact that Eve adds a line about how God also said that they shouldn't touch the fruit. That is not actually an idea that God utters. And misunderstanding in itself isn't necessarily a bad or worrisome thing because in relationship, in worlding and reworlding, we can work through misunderstanding towards an even deeper echoing of the greater meaning of things. The fall, however, involves insisting on taking what has been misunderstood as if it's been understood. It involves taking the knowledge of good and evil in the minds of Adam and Eve as equivalent to the knowledge of good and evil in the mind of God. Here's another thing. Interpretation, that is hermeneutics, implies a seeking after meaning and a relationship with the meaning maker. What is most important is not understanding the exact words said and the meaning of those words because words on their own are de-worlded and therefore potentially meaningless. What is most important is knowing the one who speaks. For Adam, it is about knowing God and knowing Eve deeply and intimately. But in Genesis 3, we find the relationships all topsy-turvy and inside out such that interpretation becomes a twofold happening of A. Assuming that what the serpent thinks God means is not what he means and B. Assuming that we can arrive at the meaning of anything apart from the world it comes out of. In the case of A, meaning can be accessed through naive realism. What is intuitively known is automatically correct. A lot of people tend to assume that. But naive realism is really silly and won't work. In the case of B, things can be de-worlded and still be easily understood. Well, that's just as silly and also won't work. In both cases, meaning becomes monolithic and anti-dialogical. There is no room to breathe. Of course, that is exactly what serpent logic is all about stopping us from breathing, from participating in the wide high depths of the heavenly realm. If we jump ahead from Genesis 3 to the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, we start to notice in it a kind of celebration of the need for interpretation. As the story goes, the people of the earth want to make a name for themselves by equaling God. So they begin to build a tower, and they're going to use this tower to reach the heavens. They have this technology called bricks that they discover, so obviously part of this hope to reach the heavens has to do with technology, that is, with the power that people believe they have acquired. But they do not inspirit the earth. They don't bother to ask God about it. They are raising earth up without paying any attention to heaven. And I guess this might be partly why God doesn't like this monolithic embrace of egotism and idolatry, because it sounds exactly like serpent logic to him. He doesn't want them to arrive at a clear, single-minded, single-sided interpretation of things. The result is that God relativizes language. He creates linguistic division so that very suddenly no one is speaking the same language. And then God scatters the people all over the earth. 
This is an origins myth indicating how our linguistic diversity arrived. Of course, students of the history of language know that things are more complicated than this, but the myth is here to show us at least in part that it is God's goodness that is at the root of our linguistic diversity. It's not a bad thing that we speak different languages, but something divinely ordained. God wants different languages. He wants people to take the trouble to interpret others. In fact, we even find in the book of Acts that speaking in tongues is one of the spiritual gifts and that the interpretation of tongues is another one named by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. This is not, as you will notice, the eradication of tongues, but the creation of bridges and mediation between tongues. Why would this be important, though? Well, because in taking the trouble to interpret, we develop relationships. We figure out how to put the world the right way up. We notice how things can be better when we're working together towards solving problems. The conversation is ongoing and it doesn't end. To shut down the conversation, to insist that what things mean is only what you think they mean, well, that's a lot like building the Tower of Babel. And to open up the conversation, to empathically engage with the words of others and in the worlds of others, well, that's a lot like speaking in tongues and translating tongues. Notice, too, however, that bridging these divides is far from easy Even if we get to speak and interpret tongues, and this is far from certain, the hard work of relationship is still going to be there. Even when we do happen to speak the same language, we are uniquely gifted at finding all kinds of ways to mess up our relationships through countless misunderstandings. I say all of this because what I've come to understand about faith and understanding being in transition is this. Where it is healthy and wholesome and good, there is a seeking to understand. There is what you might call a hermeneutic impulse. There is a desire to know things in a deeper way. This is not about seizing knowledge from some tree. It's not about plucking what was not given. It's about entering into a world of meaning. I know many of you can relate to this because you've seen something. You've seen that the story is bigger than you thought it was, that the world is bigger than you thought it could ever be, and that everything is drenched in meaning. Remember, meaning echoes outwards. But as I've already hinted, there is another more insidious, more dangerous impulse, and we are all prone to giving into it. It is the impulse to assume that we can take the fruit and know instantly what is going on, that we can intuitively understand what others have taken entire lifetimes to understand. This is the anti-hermeneutic impulse, and it manifests in two dominant ways. The first of which I've already mentioned, naive realism, which assumes that there is no work to be done, that the text is clear, that things are self-evidently true or not. You can think of this impulse as being a bit like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. The other manifestation of the anti-hermeneutic impulse and the extreme opposite of naive realism is interpretive nihilism, which says more or less that anything goes. This, if you like, is the impulse of the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son who abandons home and his world completely in favor of a completely degenerate, de existence. 
both brothers make the mistake of the serpent and the mistake of Adam and Eve. They fail to seek the heart and love and grace of the Father, which reconciles all dualities, marries them within and through a kind of divine eros that reaches toward an even deeper love that is agape. All of this leaves us with a choice. Do we join the drama of meaning, the union of heaven and earth, and the naming of animals and the entertaining of angels? Or do we exit it by insisting that things must mean only what we say they must mean? How we respond to this choice will determine how we grow. It will shape whether our faith will expand like a seed planted in the ground or shrink like an apple being crushed between the teeth of Adam and Eve and split up instead of reconciled by these two wayward bodies who are only paying attention to the tree they should be ignoring instead of being open to the entire feast that is the Garden of Eden. <laughs>